This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Now I'd like to introduce our esteemed uh, panel, and, and what I'll do is give a brief bio on who these wonderful gentlemen are, and then I'll ask them each a few questions. I'd first uh, like to start with our faith leaders today, Emmanuel Perlman, who we call Manny, and Imam Taha Hussain. As you both know, when our houses of worship are under attack, which they have been a lot frequently, many turn to faith leaders for guidance, support, advice and try to find a way to forge a model for a path forward. I'd like to introduce Manny, CEO and founder of Destination Peace International, global speaker on conflict resolution and canter. Destination Peace is a global movement that connects people around the world through a unique common language transmitted through music. Its goals are to challenge your minds and change your hearts, using music as a transformative change to connect people with one another and break through these barriers that divide us. Destination Peace envisions a world without political, religious, uh, racial, or ethnic strife. Manny is a world-renowned lyric, tenor, composer, lecturer, recording artist, a wonderful community leader, and comes from a family of cantors. Manny has performed at the United Nations, Windsor Castle, St. George's Hall, and has worked with many Academy and Grammy award-winning soundtrack studios. In addition to being a cantor, he's also served as a clinical social worker in New York City. Manny, thank you for being here. It's a privilege to be with you today. Thank you you very much. Anger, from which hate stems, is a manifestation of depression. Depression is anger turned inward. The depressed person either implodes or reacts explosively to their pain. Depression from a non-biological cause stems from feelings of inadequacy and poor self-esteem. That may include personal, cultural, or economic areas. These feelings of inadequacy are also manifested apart from hate by jealousy and envy. As children handle these feelings by yanking objects from others and by other aggressive acts, Adults replicate these behaviors on a grander scale by yanking territory, by engaging in hostile acts as well as through warfare. Personal causes of feeling inadequate are consequences of poor parenting and of physical differences, the color of skin, your weight, and I can tell you sitting on this chair, your height. (laughs) That leads to ridicule or being different. Cultural differences leading to feelings of inadequacy stem from misinterpreting someone's religious practices, language of foreign accents, and other forms of behavior and customs invoking notice and ridicule because they stand out as different. Economic underpinnings of inadequacy stem from poverty and lacking the same stuff as somebody else. Just as therapy is an applied treatment of depression, so must international hostilities be treated by psychologists who are experts in addressing behavioral difficulties. Unfortunately, traveling the world, I find that international difficulties are instead often poorly handled. It would be in the world's best interest 
to incorporate highly trained geopolitical, social, evolutionary, organizational, developmental, sociological, and forensic psychologists into fixing these global problems. The global remedial approach of destination peace is the clarification and modification of the belief system that predisposes groups to overreact to supposed threats, the development of strategies to hinder the hostile sequence in its earliest stage, and the abandonment of violence as an acceptable weapon. We are a unifying, universal musical language. We use psychological interventions that help overturn racial perspectives, not through discussion, but through, as an example, experiential isolation and ridicule to gain perspective. The most effective way to get others to see the perspective of their victim is to know what it is like to be on the receiving end. And I will point out when Marriott spoke, these behavioral humanistic therapies and approaches, I get the biggest bear hugs after. They're the ones that respond the most. But you have to have behavioral therapy in order for someone to understand what it's like to be in that position of being ridiculed. Dialogue alone is insufficient. It is through the remarkable results of the National Conflict Resolution Center, through a path forward, declaring a day of kindness and the unbreakable spiritual bonding of community interreligious leaders that peaceful coexistence will prevail in our time. And before I conclude, Lindsay Wagner may have just been fictitiously a bionic woman, but she's also an angelic woman. Hmm. <laughs> the first... An immutable principle of humanity is that there are no disposable human beings. Yeah. The commandment to love our neighbor only appears once in the Hebrew Bible. I've gone to yeshiva since the sixth grade, and here I am on the Sabbath. Because bringing peace to the world is a lot more important. Do you know that the commandment to love the stranger occurs 37 times? Someone who lives in your neighborhood is similar to yourself and easy to love. A stranger is different. Is different from you. And that is why the commandment is clear and unambiguous to unconditionally love the outsider. Recognizing the divinity inherent in others is at the core with one's covenant with one's God. No toddler, no child, no teenager, mother or father, no creation of God is disposable anywhere on this planet, never, ever. Thank God. Thank you, Manny. I love the passion. I love the passion. <laughs> Thank you for everything that you're doing. Our next speaker, Imam Taha Hassin, Imam and director of the Islamic Center of San Diego. Imam Taha graduated from the Institute of Islamic Sciences at the University of Algiers in his native Algeria. He served as a high school teacher for 10 years before he came to the United States. He holds a Master of Theology in Islamic Studies from the Graduate Theological Foundation in South Bend, Indiana. Go Irish, I went to Notre Dame and we uh, weathered a lot of storms out there. <laughs> 
Imam Taha was the NCRC's 2018 Community Hero for his work in civility and politics. And thank God, because we need more civility in politics today. As a faith leader, he has used his position to bring the community together in addressing the region's most challenging issues, alongside with other religious and non-religious leaders. He has led conversations on problem-solving forums on issues such as immigration, homelessness, racial injustice, and workers' wages. Imam, thank you for being here today. We appreciate you. Uh, Steve and I were talking about you earlier. He had just uh, completed an interview the other day, and he, he really set the stage of some of the crisis and hate crimes that were occurring in our community. And I just wanted to ask as my first question, based on that great interview that you gave, what are the day-to-day -day experiences that, of hate crimes that our Muslim youth and others are experiencing? Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, in the name of Allah, the most gracious, the most merciful. I'd like to start by greeting you all with the greeting of peace, the greeting of Islam, and say, Assalamu alaikum, which means peace be with you all. And thank you so much for having me um, sitting here with these great people, giants in our community who are working day after day to ensure the betterment of our society. It's an honor for me to sit here uh, today. And answering your question, um, I sincerely, I, I wish I have something good to share with you when it comes to the day-to-day uh, struggle of my community members. I wish I have good news to share with you, but the reality is that many of my community members are going through a time of fear, a time of anxiety, a time of discomfort, just because they are Muslims, they are Middle Easterns, North Africans, Southeast Asians, because the way they look, because the way they believe, the way they pray, the language they speak. And this has been something going on for a while now. And most recently, I'm sure, if not all of you, some of you heard about two most recent incidents taking place right here in our beautiful San Diego. Two weeks ago, three young Muslim women walking in downtown, going to Little Italy just to enjoy their time on a Sunday afternoon, when somebody coming across them uh, tried to harm them physically and, and he pulled away the hijab, the headscarf of one of them, and he started yelling at them, go back home, you don't belong to here. So this incident was a very serious one taking place right here in our streets. Last Tuesday, and, and by the way, the guy, you know, had a gun, has a silencer, and which made the, you know, the situation worse. Um, last Tuesday, a 17-year-old young man, a Syrian refugee who just came with his family to San Diego about three years ago, was attacked at the trolley when he was coming back from, home, from school to home. And he was attacked just because he was speaking on the phone in Arabic with his friend. And because of that, he was subjected to not only verbal abuse and violence, but also to physical abuse. And both cases are under investigation by our uh, SDPD and, and DA office. 
these kind of incidents are only the, the, the reported ones. And it's known within the Arab culture, South, you know, Asian culture, uh, East African culture, North African culture, that we don't report. Even though I urge my community from the pulpit every time, if you experience something like this, please let us know. But many of our community members are like, you know, don't worry about it. Just be patient. God reward you for your patience. You know, you don't have to report it. You don't have to make a big deal out of it. And I'm like, no. Our neighbors, our friends in the community, our allies, the law enforcement, the elected officials, they need to know what's going on because we need a strong and powerful action mm -hmm. that, unfortunately, we didn't see yet. I don't know what are we waiting for. I don't know whether we are waiting for something major that might cause more damage to the lives of the people for us as elected officials, as, you know, authorities right here in San Diego to move on and, and do something and act in order to make sure that people are safe in our streets. I don't know what we are waiting for. I don't know. So this is the day-to-day -day reality. We do receive sometimes reports of abuse. And then when we ask the families, you know, would, would you like me to report this to the law enforcement or to send, you know, a press release to the, to the media? And they are like, no, 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 Iman, please don't do anything. We're just telling you what happened so you will be aware of it. And I'm working very hard to change this culture because... I strongly believe that when people in this situation, when, we ha when they have the courage to uh, m come forward and, and, and speak about what happened to them, it will happen others. It will empower others, members, other members of the community. So, unfortunately, this is the situation that we are experiencing. In addition to this abuse in the streets, many of our kids have been bullied at school. Yeah. And every year we get the report from CARE California, Council on American Islamic Relations, California, about what's going on in our schools. Being bullied not only by their peers and classmates, but sometimes being bullied by their own teachers. When a Muslim child, the only Muslim child in the classroom, hears his or her teacher talking about the Islamic faith and the Muslim community in a very negative way. It hurts. It hurts. So this is something that I believe it's not only the, the, the responsibility of the Muslim community to do something about it, but it is a collective responsibility. Everyone. Everyone in this society, no matter who you are, what's your position, you can do something. You can do something, whether you are in the media, you are an elected official, you are a teacher at school, social worker, whatever, whoever you are, you can do something because when part or a portion of this community is feeling good, then the entire community will feel good. If we allow these kind of things to happen to some of us, then all of us we will be target yeah. to these kind of abuses. And the last thing I would like to mention is that the need 
to call things the way they are. Mm -hmm. Stop going around the bush and try to find justifications or something like this. When we see something, when we see an abuse, a violence coming from whatever group of people, we have to say it clear and loud to this group of people that you have to stop this. You have to stop this. So this is the only way that we can do to tackle and to address these issues within our community. Thank you so much. Thank you, Imam Taha. Uh, thank God Jeff Light, the publisher and editor, is sitting right next to you of the San Diego Union-Tribune. So let's get everyone to start reporting and, and speaking, as you said, because it's important for our community and for everybody in our society. Next is Jeff Light. I've had the privilege of working with Jeff Light at the San Diego Union-Tribune for three years. I also sit on his community advisory board, and uh, it's a privilege to have you here, Jeff. Jeff has worked for newspapers and their websites over the last three decades. Uh, he's been an editor, a reporter, an intern, and even a hopper. We can ask him about that later. <laughs> Delivery on the trucks. <laughs> Jeff believes that journalism is one of society's greatest callings, and I could not agree with him more, especially given given in today's circumstances. With a bachelor's degree from Brown University, MBA from University of California, Irvine, he started as a reporter in Syracuse, New York, then became vice president for interactive publishing at the Orange County Register. And in 2010, he was the editor and vice president for the San Diego Union Tribune, and he's currently the editor and publisher. Jeff, thank you so much for being here. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, working with Jeff, um, I can speak from firsthand experience. The San Diego Union Tribune takes a very active role in trying to report hate crimes and hate speech, um, including those that might not show up on the major media outlets. It is something that's very important to him and the entire newspaper. So I wanted to ask Jeff, why is shedding light... And literally, his name is Jeff Light. So why is shedding light on this issue important to you? Uh, well, thank you, Stephanie, and thank you for having me here. Uh, well, obviously, it's important to me, just as it's important to everybody sitting up here and everybody in the room. Um, and, and, and I think in particular, media is in a, uh, has, plays a really important role in this uh, question, yeah. uh, both for the good and the bad. Um, you know, a bunch of us are working uh, pretty, pretty, uh, pretty assiduously in the community to try to build connections and uh, uh, create uh, uh, more resilience and tolerance in, in our community. And one thing that is vexing is well, we're preaching to the choir, right? So the people in this room uh, are obviously dedicated to these ideas uh, but the only way to spread the ideas uh, generally is through media. Um, and unfortunately, the sort of the other side of it is also true. So um, we are in a living in an environment, a media environment that is steeped in violence, uh, if, you know, starting with uh, Hollywood movies. Uh, Lindsay would probably know these better than me, but if you... Uh, if you look at the level of gun violence in movies, mm -hmm. it's, it's unbelievable. Uh, there was uh, 
a big 2013 study that found gun violence in movies had increased 50% in the previous decade. And I, I can't imagine what it is now, right? Yeah. Um, uh, video gaming uh, is also uh, even worse. Uh, there's been like sampling of games that find the percentage of games where uh, you, you have to kill to win is, you know, like 80, 90% of the games. And the objectification of women and misogyny and violence toward women is really pervasive in that platform. And there's a lot of uh, sort of over-intellectualized uh, uh, denial in this whole area. So you'll find many studies, I've uh, just Googled these topics, oh, it doesn't really matter. I, I, I find that uh, probably incorrect, but... Um, uh, so, so that's the background, and then uh, adding to that, uh, the social media era turns out to be uh, especially troubling where you have uh, anonymity uh, and uh, self-select- self-selected groups where people are subject to uh, emotional contagion and hatred um, and, uh, and manipulation as well. Uh, uh, digital media turns out to be sort of a behavioralist's laboratory. So the ability to manipulate uh, our base emotions is very heavy. I'm not sure I know that uh, what uh, Stephanie was saying is completely true, that hate is something we're not for. I definitely think there's a predisposition toward, uh, uh, there's a lot of human weakness. And, And if we don't take care with it, we end up with a very bad result. And if we don't have a hygienic approach to the information that we expose ourselves to, mm-hmm. uh, we end up with the world we're living in today, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and then sort of the last factor on that, I think, is the weakening of local media so that um, uh, the national platforms allow you to uh, engage, I think, uh, uh, rather anonymously without true relationships. So the level of... Uh, understanding uh, and uh, humility and compassion in those platforms tends to be low. Uh, And in local media, it's really the uh, chance for people to be observed, for accountability to happen between people, and for relationships to be built and to see through other people's eyes, right? So how can I get to know uh, the stranger Uh, The first way is by knowing that uh, uh, she exists, uh, seeing her in a compassionate light, understanding uh, uh, her achievements and values. Uh, So these things, to me, are all the domain of local media. And so I think if you take together all of these pieces, you see we're in a very dangerous time. And I think if you just wake up in the morning and look at what's going on, I think we all share this feeling that this is uh, not going in the right direction. So that's sort of a long answer to your question, Stephanie. This is why I feel like this role in local media is, is very, very important. And uh, we, we all need to take it seriously. And we all need to figure out how to do it even better. Yeah. You know, uh, to follow up on Jeff, and even when we were working at the newspaper, it's when you read the news, a lot of it is 
negative. You know, it's these stories that are coming out and you're reading it and sometimes it's hard to read or put on the TV to watch it because it doesn't feel good. Um, so it is important, but I know, Jeff, you and the Union Tribune are being very proactive um, and trying to find unique ways to cover, you know, these hate crimes and coverage, but also to be proactive in the community. And I know um, you've worked a lot with National Conflict Resolution Center. There's been a good partnership in place to have these community dialogues. But I just wanted to ask before I turn to Steve is, um, it, you know, what are the unique things that you would say the newspaper is doing to overcome this? Or what are some things that we should be considering or that you've seen in other outlets that maybe we should, you know, take on? Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing is uh, showing up and taking the issue seriously. Um, that clip from the uh, uh, forum that we put together with uh, survivors of uh, hate crimes in Charleston and Charlottesville uh, and Oak Creek and uh, uh, Pittsburgh uh, is the example of the kind of engagement uh, that we do that was speaking to those people in person was a remarkable experience. Um, and, you know, to us, it's not just journalistically, but as a company, uh, we, we're trying to do our part to build uh, a, better, a better world. Mm -hmm. uh, this week, we were part of launching... Uh, workplace equity and civility initiative where we partnered with Steve as well as with the lawyers club in San Diego to guarantee the, the premise of basic fairness and safety in the workplace. Um, and we, you know, try to use our platform truthfully to create peer pressure around those issues. Um, so I think these ideas of a community movement are, uh, are, um, are viable ideas and where, uh, you know, big things start at the grassroots. So I think that's what we're trying to achieve. Good. Thank you, Jeff. Next, I'd like to introduce Steve Dinkin, president of the National Conflict Res Resolution Center since 2003. I have the honor of working with Steve, as I sit on the board as well. Uh, Steve has spearheaded national standards for mediation training, has worked with the U.S. Department of Homeland Security Transportation Security Administration, established a community dispute resolution center in Washington, D.C., provided mediation services and training in Baja, California, has worked with the Federal Reserve System and the federal government. Steve earned his JD from George Washington University Law and also was an adjunct law professor. Steve, thank you for being here today. My pleasure. National Conflict Resolution Center has been uh, completing these series and dialogues and, you know, uh, bringing the community together to have a conversation. Uh, it's titled A Path Forward, which is our panel today. And Steve has really been at the forefront of that. So I wanted to ask, Steve, as a follow-up to the panel and the discussion you saw in that video in June, uh, you've also been convening a lot of these groups uh, throughout our community. What is the role of these community dialogues that we're having? And overcoming hate. Well, thank you, Stephanie. I, I just uh, want to uh, begin by saying, as we are uh, searching for a path forward in society, our organization has realized from the very beginning that we can't do this by ourselves. And that's why uh, we have uh, joined forces with the Union Tribune, with religious leaders, uh, with UCSD and other universities, law enforcement community leaders, to, because in order to really move forward, we have to do this uh, as a society. And running this organization for 16 years, I, I have to say that 
Never before have I felt this sense of incivility, the heightened level of conflict than, than we are experiencing today. It's almost as if you can take a pitcher of water and pour it onto a, a cracks on a table and see how the water flows. That's really like conflict, and we're finding conflict showing up in all aspects of society. And as an organization, we are bringing conflict resolution skills and solutions to all these different levels, and we're taking lessons from those to try to apply that uh, to society. So I, I think of it, uh, in a sense, as a continuum, and in the center is the, let's imagine, moderation. So people who are at the center who are moderate thinking. And then if you go to the left or you go to the right, you move toward uh, the fringe. And what's happening is that this polarization the extremism, the fringe on either side is becoming uh, more and more accentuated in our current society. So how do you tackle uh, this issue? There's so many different approaches, but our belief is to really begin at the center and then move out in both directions. And the key is it's all based on relationships. And so at the edges of the center, what we're thinking is that if we can build relationships at the edge, then you start to bring people who are more to the left and more to the right toward the center so that they can engage in respectful dialogue. I'm not saying that everyone has to have the same belief, but the key is that moderation allows for uh, important dialogue around really challenging issues. So how do you start to build uh, these relationships? We are doing that through these series of dialogues in the community. And we're using a technique that we actually started um, focusing on in the criminal justice system. We have a project uh, with Summer Steffen, who was here this morning with the district attorney and other law enforcement officials. It's called restorative community conferencing. And it's a way to get youth who commit serious offenses, rather than being on the pipeline to prison, the law enforcement's allowing us to enter into a restorative conference with the youth. So I witness this where a youth comes into a room with the victim. Uh, let's say the youth commits an offense. We have the victim, community members, and others, and they sit in a restorative conference, in a restorative dialogue. And if the youth is able to come up with a resolution with the group, then the district attorney's office would drop the charges. So I, this is such an impactful program, and I was watching this dialogue, this restorative approach, this circle dialogue, and I saw that the youth had a strong voice in that process. Even though that youth had maybe committed the offense, uh, still, uh, for the first time possibly in his or her life, they were listened to. And the impact on that youth moving forward, if they came through that dialogue, it was transformative. And so from that, we started introducing that same dialogue approach in schools, K through 12. So if a youth commits offense on the playground, on the campus, it's maybe not at a level of a serious offense, but even so, it's a way to address discipline through this dialogue process. And again, I saw the success of that. 
So then we moved it into the campus. UCSD, we created a program called Dialogue Ambassadors, and student leaders were trained to lead these circle dialogues around the most serious issues in our society. So you take a campus like UCSD that's so diverse that the white student on the campus is is actually the minority student. So what we are seeing on the campus is that each student group were really in silos. They weren't coming together to have a serious discussion. And if they did come together, it was oftentimes just an angry discussion. It it, it wasn't something that was in a problem-solving approach. So we introduced the Circle Dialogue onto the campus, started dealing with issues like freedom of expression and other things that are impacting society, and we saw that impact. We then brought it to society, started with police officers and citizens, the same type of approach trying to bring a citizen together with an officer in a conversation where everyone's in a circle, there's nothing in front of them, so they're vulnerable. For the first time, an officer could look at a citizen and say, look, you know, I, when I go home at night, I also have a family. And the citizen looks at the officer and says, well, I, I never thought of you as you know, a person like that who would go home to a family. It changed the perspective of the citizen. And then the officer heard in the same approach from the citizen saying how when they saw the officer, perhaps they were frightened. They didn't know which direction to run. And it created a sense of humanity. And noticing this very impactful process, we began to apply this to a path forward across society, dealing with anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, racism, and so working with, uh, with the Union Tribune and others, we started creating these dialogues across society. And we just didn't do it in one place. We, we started out at the Jewish Community Center. Then we moved to an African-American church in Southeast San Diego. Tomorrow, uh, with Imam Taha, we're having our third dialogue at the Islamic Center from 2 o'clock to 5 o'clock. Our final dialogue of this year is going to be on the Midway, which is a naval ship. So for instance, why would you have a dialogue on a naval ship? Because the military is an important piece of the puzzle as well. So we can't just have, as Jeff was saying, the same people coming to the discussion. The key is to create the relationships across society so that the center will continue to grow from the left and also from the right. Thank you. So I know we only have time for two questions, but before I do so, what you're seeing here today is a national model right here. If we can bring together university with faith leaders and practitioners and media all together, we're doing it right now in our community. And you might not know it, but it's happening every day. If we can take this nationally and globally, it'll be huge for our world. So just to summarize, we asked ourselves, what is hate? Why do we have so much hate and hatred in the world? And how do we overcome this? And the answer is simple. You show up just like you showed up today. You have a conversation. We discuss it. We talk about it. Be kind. America's kindest city. Thank you for that. (laughs) Have compassion. Understand one another. Empathize. Lastly, and most importantly, be the light. As Rabbi Goldstein said in that video, show random acts of goodness and kindness. Every act of kindness adds light to the world, and a little bit of light 
can push a lot of darkness away. So thank you very much. <laughs> So my question is, um, when I go to these circles, they're usually people that know, you know what I mean, that I want to engage in dialogue. Um, how do we bring those models to the underrepresented groups um, that don't have direct access? Um, so what does that look like for your uh, particular agency? I, I, I think that the underrepresented groups are the most critical, and we didn't have time to uh, get into this discussion, but just as an example, we've created a center for community cohesion in Southeast San Diego. It's one of the more um, sort of at-risk communities, uh, very diverse, and so not only do we need to focus on sort of broad-based work across society, but also to go deep into a community and try to resolve issues in some of the most uh, troubling uh, communities in our, in our society. And I think that also is a model to go neighborhood to neighborhood and, and to include all members of our society in these types of discussions. Just jump in and add, uh, uh, I do think that's a, a very important and difficult problem because the scale of society has gotten such that it's sort of hard to do. Uh, we've got a program as well with, through the YMCA because we were looking for a partner. What is an institution that's in every neighborhood? So then when we go and listen uh, uh, in those like little neighborhood town halls, part of the expectation people have is that uh, there'll be like a whole media outlet about me and my neighborhood which, you know, there are some models, but really that's, that's probably not going to happen. But my feeling is the relationship building. So like if my staff walked away, uh, let's say we brought 20 people down there for a conversation. If each of them made two new connections, uh, we have 40 new relationships in a little corner of the city that we didn't know. And that's to me what's going to have to happen, right? Like somehow each of us taking responsibility to build who we know. So. I think also the key is diversity. And so we just lost a wonderful friend. I'm from Baltimore. And Elijah Cummings was someone I sat next to at a football game, and we spoke about the inner city. And his best friend growing up is on the board of Destination Peace, and he's on the front of the New York Times talking about how he cried all day when he heard about Elijah Cummings, and he pushed for diversity. The problem is, is that we all watch the same channel, the one that we want to watch, and we tune into the Facebook pages that we want to see. But I traveled the world. In 1976, when I got married, my wife and I were attacked by a gang because we were in New Orleans. They came at us with broken bottles. My wife was pregnant. And David Dukes, who was not even known around the world yet, was walking around in his Nazi regalia. Then we moved to Illinois to get away from that. Then there was the Skokie March with the Nazis, the neo-Nazis, with Frank Collins. So I ended up there. See, my father was a Marine. And he, I found out when he died four years ago in the congressional record that Senator Ben Cardin wrote about him, that I didn't know he was a heavyweight boxer, 16 bouts, never lost. And he did it to prove in the Marines on Iwo Jima the Jews aren't cowards. So, you know, one of the things that I do is use music. 
I can't use things that are based on finances because fiduciary responsibility always wins out over everything. So what I do is I take a song and music can calm the savage beast. And the beast is not an animal, it's us. So we have to, so I've sung at the Mormon Tabernacle, three Hebrew songs with the choir. It was magnificent. I'll never forget it. I've sung in the National Basilica. But the highlight, of course, is being here today. (laughs) I have noticed that one of the biggest um, barriers to building empathy and removing and building connections is miseducation, misinformation, revisionist history. We all have these narratives of, you know, what happened in the past and how things are and why people are poor. If you ask most people why people are poor, they'll think it's a problem of personal responsibility or it's a moral issue. So we all have this this miseducation and revisionist history that we used to that makes it difficult for us to engage and get on the other side and see what's happening. Um, and so I think one of, the, one of the biggest opportunities is just to educate uh, the people right, and especially about the structural issues that are preventing people from transcending their circumstances. So you mentioned the community circles, the restorative justice circles. Um, how do we bring such things to the broader audience, you know, the broader, like at companies, when people have a diversity and inclusion training, it's usually a three-hour training for the rest of their lives, <laughs> you know, and yeah. that's not enough. And 70% of the U.S. population is in the workforce. So that's a great opportunity for us to educate people about the different structural issues that are going on, and especially about the history of this country. So... Um, how do you suggest we bring that education to these people who are not necessarily seeking it, but when they hear it, it can help them develop um, empathy? Does the question make sense? Yes. Uh, sure, it makes sense. Yeah. And I, I think that uh, we do have to uh, tackle this, this, this issue from so many different angles and, and approaches and looking at all levels of society. We start talking about you know, in the home with the family between the mother, the father, the teenager, the youth in the, in the schools. But uh, you mentioned the workplace. Uh, we do spend oftentimes 90,000 hours of our lives in the, in the workplace, one-third of our time. And I, I think that the workplace is, is one of the most uh, critical areas. And uh, Ken Blanchard has spent a whole career uh, bringing training into the workplace. Uh, that is a, uh, a major uh, frontier. So your idea of trying to uh, look at all levels of society uh, is, is absolutely a, a critical component to a path forward, no doubt about it. Stephanie? Yeah. yeah I would like to go back a little bit um, to uh, the ladies' um, comment and question about, about the family values. You know, I... I totally agree with you that everything starts from the family. Um, but what we are doing as families, as parents with our kids, just to tell them to love your neighbor and all that is not enough. 
you know, most of the kids at school who bully their, 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 their Muslim, you know, classmates or their Southeast Asian or African classmates, um, they do so because they, they heard something during the discussion around the dinner table. They heard something from their own parents. So it's not enough to teach our kids the importance of loving our neighbor. But I'm afraid that we are telling them our neighbor who looks like us. You know, but if the neighbor. But if our neighbor looks a little bit different, worship differently, um, have different color of skin speaks a different language, I'm afraid that these neighbors are not included in the teachings that we give to our kids, which means that we need to update the way we teach our kids. And I strongly believe in the power of the family to shape the personality of the kids. And when we see the kids, we mean the next generation. As the timekeeper, I do have, I am aware that we do have time for the question over here and as the question in the back, but we also have time for Manny to sing if he did have the moment. Let me just say one thing first. I sound like a rabbi, I know. I'm a cantor, I'm a cantor. We have cantorial jokes. But I have sung at the Mormon Tabernacle. I've sung at the National Basilica. I have attended with Suresh and family, friends, 30 Hindu temples in India. I've had private time with the Dalai Lama and Amma eight times in a year and a half, and I got to sit next to Lindsay Wagner. The, 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 the truth is, the, and these seats are really fun, the truth is, is that how come it is that I've taught 2,630 bar and bat mitzvah students and people still come up to me and say, oh, I've never been to a bar mitzvah before. I've never been in a synagogue before. What's wrong with that? And how many of you have not been to a Hindu temple or a Baha'i temple like we went to Baha'i temple? I didn't even know what Baha'i was. So what is that? I believe for every drop of rain that falls, a flower grows. I believe that someone in the great somewhere hears every word. Every time you see a child drawing in a book with a Jewish star, that's quite unusual. <laughs> you know there's God all around. It's because we believe in the future of children. Mm -hmm. And we better do better. We better do better. And it's about standing up. It says in Ethics of the Fathers, where there are no men, stand up and be a man. And I'll change that now. Where there are no women, stand up and be a woman like Lindsay. <laughs> My question is from the perspective of workforce development um, and creating pipelines um, that represent 
you know, the community that represent humanity. Um, so from the San Diego Union Tribune, a lot of times with media, representation informs storytelling, right? So what pipelines are in place from a workforce development standpoint to get equal representation in that media space so that the stories that are coming out reflect the humanity that's around us? Yeah. Super important question. I mean, people often would ask me, like, where do the stories come from? Well, the stories come from the people that the reporters know. So the way media works, so the way newspaper uh, websites and uh, print uh, organizations work, TV is a little more assignment-driven, but I think the lesson is the same. People are assigned to cover a community or a beat. They identify uh, stakeholders uh, who... uh, who, who they think uh, are well-connected or important in some way. And that conversation among those people, what's important to them, becomes the news. So fundamentally, who we know and who we are definitely is dictating what you see. And uh, we talked a little bit about the formative uh, power of the media. Um, so for us, uh, diversifying the company... Um, works through internship programs, partnerships we have with uh, um, uh, the different uh, uh, ethnic media support groups. So uh, we work with the local NABJ, NAHJ, and NAHJ groups. These are associations of Hispanic, uh, Black, and Latino journalists um, uh, to... uh, to recruit and to give the, uh, it's not just a matter of recruitment, but to give people a feeling of support in the workplace, because that's also a big barrier. Um, uh, at our company, we've uh, been more successful at diversifying the leadership than the company as a whole, which in some ways uh, is maybe just a little bit the opposite of what typically you would see. So uh, the, the editors who sort of control the uh, the flow of news are um, a really diverse group. Uh, but the body of the company is still like lags the, the, in its ability to reflect the community. Um, I think that happens typically because uh, the community is changing faster than the, than the workforce in general. And it's also a little harder to, uh, to change like a big group of people, like that group of editors key editors at the paper are 12 to 15 people. So if you change five or six people there, you can make tremendous headway. The newsroom as a whole is more than 150 people. So if you've changed five or six people there, you haven't made much progress. But um, uh, we do uh, have um, affirmative programs in place where this is something that we we work at. And if you looked at uh, our hiring profile, uh, it would be be one that I would feel good about. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.